Hey guys, welcome all to the Moringa School podcast. It's another week, another episode. We have a couple of amazing guests. They'll introduce themselves a bit later. As it stands right now, I'm still Leo Igane, here with Melissa, Victor Rere, uh, Eugene, Cynthia Moreti. Okay, so as the adage goes, ladies first, we'll have the fetching young lady introduce herself and yeah, we'll pick it on from there. Um, hi guys, my name is Harriet Karuki. I'm the co-founder of AfriJob, where we match um, top global students to African, fast-growing African companies. Hi everyone, my name is Trey Hunt. I co-founded AfriJob with Harriet, and I look forward to talking to everyone today. Okay, so tell us a bit about the stories, how you guys met and uh, what led you to start AfriJob. Um, I went to Harvard and uh, he was a year ahead of me. So, and we didn't talk much, but uh, we had a couple of ideas and we actually got accepted to the same program in China together where we did our masters um, in Peking University as the Anching Scholars. And I came back after, after a year to Kenya where I started working with a couple of startups as I understood, like came to better understand the, um, the Nairobi ecosystem. And then I met him a year later when he, he can tell his story, it's part of the story, but I, I, we met in college and my master's program and I came back to Kenya to just understand the startup ecosystem and then I met him, but I can tell his version. Right, so in Nairobi, uh, Harriet and I got to talking and we began to, uh, on the one hand, reflect on some of our past experiences and at the same time analyze some of the uh, opportunities that exist in the current ecosystem. And one thing that we noticed is back when we were at Harvard, if you wanted to intern or have some type of experience in other regions of the world, for example, uh, in East Asia, South America, or Europe, it was quite easy to get, um, or there are platforms that already existed which allowed for you to um, um, access very cool internship or job opportunities in those regions of the world. However, back when we were there, I think there might be it might be a little bit different now, but still basically the same. Uh, if you wanted to come and intern in Africa, there was only one opportunity, and that was you could um, work at a school in Botswana, which is very cool if you want to go to Botswana, and also very cool if you want to do teaching. But if you want to work at an enterprise or you want to develop some of the skills that you've learned in school, maybe it's not the best type of opportunity for you. So we, we kind of both at the same time said, why hasn't anyone made a platform or an avenue that allows for uh, top students and in general top talent to easily come to the continent um, where people can do things besides uh, work at an orphanage or, or, or build a house and or go on safari and instead can come and work in a vibrant ecosystem uh, where they can develop skills and also help develop companies. And I can t talk about this from a Kenyan perspective mm -hmm. studying in Harvard. I think um, most of the Kenyans or most of the African students who who are doing amazing things. They are interning at Facebook, they are interning at Google. Sometimes they just want to take a time and just come back to the continent and try to you know, navigate the space, try to be part of something bigger than themselves. But as a Kenyan, to be honest, it's so hard to even know what's happening when you're so far away. You know, unless you know the right person, it's so hard to keep up with what's happening. So people don't have a direct access to even figure out how they can come back. And it, let me, it's even harder for 
people who graduate as international students who get work visas. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine like a lot of people just, I, I know a lot of people, you have 18 months after graduating where you can work without worrying about the visa and the F1 visa. But right after, if your company cannot sponsor for your um, H1B visa, you have to leave the country within a week. So you're leaving the country, you don't even know where you're coming next. And you have all these skill sets that sometimes you want to figure out how you can, you know, just work around different interesting, you know, places that you can be part of and be something bigger than yourself, as I'm saying. But like, I think that's a problem. And then with all the supply, you find a lot of companies in Africa, the reason why they cannot be globally competitive is because they don't have one talent mm -hmm. and two money. And I think for you to be a globally competitive um, e-commerce company that is made in Kenya, for example, you have to have the right software developer, you have to have the right strategist, you have to have someone who can start raising money. And most of the time, it's so hard to find that skill set in, in this part of the world because our education system is still 100 years behind whatever is happening in the US. And imagine a situation where you can bring in talent to help you out become globally competitive and be able to, you know, be able to even come up with strategies on how to expand into different markets, be able to come up with infrastructure that is strong enough for you to even handle times 10 the number of customers that you have. Those are the skill set that are available in globally competitive companies. And people like this want to come back, but they don't have an opportunity to come back. And, and I think that's what we really do care about. How can we ensure that people out there who are doing amazing things can be able to bring in some of their company culture, some of the way they do, they you know, solve for problems, some of these things that we do not have yet, that we can also have that knowledge, skills transfer going back to our own local talent, and then bringing it to ensure that we are creating companies that are, you know, that are getting into the IPO systems in our own, I, I think in our own stock markets. I think that is our thesis and that's what we care about and that's how AfriJob was born. Yes. Why, why Kenya? Um, I see that a lot of attention, maybe it's because we live in Kenya, so maybe it, it's the same all over, but um, we're seeing that there's a lot of t attention in Kenya, especially in innovation and the tech space and new skills, right? So why Kenya specifically? Is it that they have a pool of uh, talent that they have, or was it just a coincidence? Why you specifically chose to settle in Kenya? Especially also, Trey, I've seen that you yeah. visited a number of uh, African yeah. countries, and both of you have studied East Asian studies. Why Africa and why Kenya? Okay, so uh, one of the main reasons for Kenya, I would say, is from a logistics perspective, mm -hmm. it's quite easier um, because Harriet is Kenyan. Um, of course, AfriJob wants to extend, and our, our goal is to extend all over the entire African uh, continent. We want to be able to match talent uh, from all around the world with companies uh, in every in every country here, within within reason or within um, within our within our capacity, um, Kenya serves as a great place um, with its relationship to the EAC, and it's a good entryway. Um, we've already we've already um, begun sourcing talent in other um, in other other countries in in, in East Africa, um, in Rwanda, in uh, Ethiopia, and also in Tanzania. So we have to start from somewhere, and why not start from here? Okay. And even going beyond just understanding the, the market, I am deeply committed to just uh, understanding this sub-Saharan ecosystem. And one of the things about the Kenyan market is one, is that as you can, the number of hubs in this space. I know um, the top three hub, the top three countries with the most hubs are South Africa, Nigeria, and then Kenya. Nigeria, South Africa, Kenya. But Kenya is one of the top three. And when you come back to this part of the world, because you know with hubs, there's more people who have idea faces and people who are coming up with you know very amazing um, companies and 
business models around that. And most of the people who come in who are Anglo focused, the only way, you know, like it's easier to navigate Kenya to achieve, to be able to access, as you said, a trace aid, Uganda and like Rwanda, which is also very proximate to our, to even the hype that is coming in in the circles. And also for most of these companies, because our clients are two-faced, our clients is the companies themselves and the students, or the fellows who are thinking about coming back to the, to the continent. So with the companies, we have a lot of companies here that are really hungry for talent because they want to scale across the continent. And I think the skill factor from the fact that a lot of most of our talent pool here is very focused on just scaling across the continent or scaling the products they want and they are seeking for a lot of this talent that is very specific in terms of like helping them scale these companies. Okay. So Kenya is a very good market to access Central Africa and East, East Africa and also for a lot of people who are foreigners who do, who do not want to go to like West Africa or yes. southern part of Africa. Okay. So Kenya is a very good market. That's, that's interesting. Let, let me ask uh, um, uh, it's not a got you or a true question, but just a <laughs> interesting question, right? Sure. D- define what you mean by talent, right? Is it a skill somebody's acquired or is it an inborn thing they have? What do you mean when you say talent? Because what I'm hearing is you mean skills, people who have certain skills. Because in Africa, talent, sometimes it's you know something you're born with. You want it nurtured. So what do you mean when you say talent? You're gonna match companies with talent. Right, so I, I think uh, philosophers have debated for millennia whether <laughs> whether talent is, is inborn or, or earned. Yeah. Um, that's not what we're, we're here to discuss today. Mm-hmm. By, by talent, I think we do just mean people with skill sets um, who can contribute to the development and um, upbringing of, of companies. So um, if you have someone who is a very good data scientist, yes, we can go back and forth uh, on whether that person was born to be a data scientist mm-hmm. or whether they, they that talent was nurtured within them. But for us, it's irrelevant. Um, what matters is this person is a good data scientist and this person is interested in uh, working at a company and helping to develop a company to a globally competitive level and that you have companies that are seeking people with these skill sets. So yes, with talent, we mean more more approximately just people with certain sets of skill sets which companies are interested in. Okay. And, and something else that a lot of our companies are interested in is fundraising, mm-hmm. right? It's like, so um, I think talent also comes from a point of view of like, as I mentioned, most of these companies need talent, which is skill sets and which, as I mentioned, like it's a continuous and entire conversation, but they also need money. And when it comes to money, and to be honest, you all know how the system works, it's the networks that you have. And most of the time, the networks that these people have access to, to be honest, it's networks that can be able to contribute heavily when you're thinking about fundraising for companies that we're working with. So, so from our point of view, it's how then can we start thinking outward? And you know, there's a lot of times that the African content, continent is where a lot of people get, you know, get to kind of like be outsourced. You know, when you think about different value chains. But I think it's also time for us to start bringing in the right kind of skill sets and networks for us to build companies that we are proud of and companies that we're controlling and we're you know we're making sure that everyone is getting this you know phenomena goods and services because everyone is getting access to them so from our point of view it's how can we best help these companies and the the only way you can help them is getting them the best data scientist or getting them the best engineer getting them the best strategist and people who have the best strategists is people who have exposure to these networks people who have worked with companies that are regarded as the best global tech companies so imagine a scenario that we are working with is have uh, we want one of our partners is a ride-hailing company, which is a, uh, a Kenyan 
and they have Kenyan co-founders and they're coming up with a raid. It's like blah, blah cars in France where it's like carpooling services where they, they have services from Eldoret to Nairobi and he needs to scale that for, to be able to be in the market, right? You need to have a good team that is one chip very easy to access, and a team that is, has the right skills. Because you're a startup, you don't need to come and train people how to do things. Sometimes when you're a startup, you want to have developers who have experience in such a way that you're not paying a cost of training people. Right. And most of these companies don't have that cost to train people because one, they're fundraising, mm -hmm. right? So it's a chicken and egg problem for a startup, and the startup most of the time, they want cheap labor that is extremely helpful. They don't want to have people running around bringing tea which is what our internship looks like in this part of the continent. Yeah. The one someone who comes in and goes out there and does a market research and tells mm. the, their co-founder that I did this particular market research, I recognize that Edorit is not the right city, we should be focusing on Nakuru. Mm -hmm. Like that is exactly what you need people who have the right set of skills, who really are passionate about this part of the world and are willing to use their skill sets for an impact. And the impact is not an NGO focus, the impact, mm -hmm. not NGO, but like the impact is not like um, visiting orphanages, which is also very important, but also like I think it's also like how can we ensure that we're creating economically progressive companies that are helping everyone have access to goods and services. It's, it's actually really good work you're doing. and. If I was to speak maybe for my one who would challenge and ask your question and, and, and phrase it like this, right? You're getting talent, people from outside of Africa to come into Africa and bring in their skill set to be able to upskill African companies and startups, right? So one would, would ask, right? We need these investments to come and plug a job. You know, there's a lot of joblessness in Africa. Why not look internally in Africa to be able to fill those slots? What's the, what's, the, what's the case for bringing people from outside to come into Africa when Africa itself lacks uh, employment? Okay, so first, first off, um, I think people do make the, the the misconception oftentimes that our database is entirely foreign. Mm -hmm. uh, a large a large percentage of our database um, is African, mm -hmm. um, whether that be uh, kind of different tiers. Like for example, in Kenya, we have many people from uh, local Kenyan institutions that have applied. We have uh, Kenyans from abroad who have applied, and then we have many uh, Nigerians um, from abroad who have applied. But then also maybe Nigerians in Nigeria, or we've even received some quite um, rare, I would say, nationalities, like some people from Guinea and um, and Angola. So it's not it's not like we are trying to flood the 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 market with foreigners um, at the same time uh, we do we are not adverse to if a company we have we ask a company what it wants many companies do want uh, just local talent or maybe regional talent um, to come and work in their company some companies if a Japanese person applies to work at a, a company in Nairobi and they're very good talent the the company doesn't care on, on the nationality of the person so um, we're also working in in better ways to find out how to better utilize and, and better uh, better optimize the, the local talent that we have um, in order to uh, have a better distribution of, of the placements that we do and one of the things that we're working with is so I have, I've had like, I'm both local and global. I can, mm -hmm. I can say I'm a global citizen, but uh, the visas is going to be an issue <laughs> because I'm African guys. <laughs> so there's that. I'm not exactly a global citizen, but I, I do think that 
sometimes what Africans we also need to recognize is that our curriculum system is again very behind mm. like we are so behind when it comes to like how our curriculum and we can't blame ourselves we are being independent for 50 years to 60 years right it's like we we don't have like harvard was founded in 1636 36 right we, i don't even know where we were in 1636 right in terms of like i know we had our empires we had we were doing good guys but the point is um our our entire curriculum system has so much to be you know founded upon and like built upon and so many skills are lacking in the market and recognizing that is one important thing that a lot of companies are facing in such a way that they're not able to grow right if if you see a lot of companies most of the time they outsource their talent in india because that's where there's a lot of like tech people right so the problem is the problem is not what we're recognizing is that there there's a there's a very short term to medium term problem right now which is like there's no skills in some specific places when you're looking for blockchain developers the schools that already started blockchain classes right there's an entire ai um school in mit we don't have an ai school yet in university of nairobi and it's not that we need it maybe we need it right now but we need also to build upon our computer science departments we need more money to feed into all these different things so in short what i'm saying is that we're recognizing the short term to medium term uh, solution right now is no is yes it's building skills but that takes time right that's why moringa school for example is like upskilling a lot of our talent because our talent is not getting the right school in universities so the point that i'm trying to make here is that once you recognize that you need a very specific skill set whether it's a data scientist who have had experience with 2 years 3 years in amazon that person will change an entire e-commerce company in kenya yeah because he has the culture of a company that has been there for i don't know how many years now mm. he has the culture of a company that we don't have yet yeah. C- companies are trying to build the prob- the thing that we recognized is then how can we transfer that skill and culture to local talent in such a way that they will be the ones who will be continuing with those things most of the programs are summer um so they're very short term programs so we have three months programs we have three weeks programs we have six months to a year programs or postgraduate programs but we recognize that most of the people will come here for two years and then leave go back to amazon or they come here for like three months and then go to harvard business school we recognize that but we also recognize that we can create we are creating another parallel program in such a way that local talent that goes through also africa program has that skills transfer has that networks like we are trying to how can we then have the africa network students who are coming in have networks to the local students here in such a way that when this guy goes and becomes an amazing Amazon CTO you have someone in Kenya who has like a connection with that space mm-hmm. so i i think from our side of view is like how can we ensure that our local talent is exposed to extreme need niche ta- skill sets that are very important to ensure that you know that we are blossoming in the next couple of years because the african continent is going to be have the highest youth population in 2050 yeah. and what would you say yeah i was, was going to add one more thing I, i think it's also important to look at i, I myself um consider myself a uh, a student of history mm-hmm. i like i like studying history um from around the world and so Uh, I, I think we can look to kind of the experience of other regions of the world or other countries when it when it comes to this issue. Um, so, uh, as Harriet mentioned before, uh, we both spent significant time in China. So, uh, I do know a I'd say a fair amount about uh, how certain events have transpired uh, in that country. And an example I like to think of is in. In the 1950s, in the late 1950s, the the Chinese government was very determined on getting a a nuclear nuclear bomb, a nuclear weapon. They were also very um, determined to get a subway, but uh, in Beijing. But they didn't know how to build 
nuclear materials. They didn't know how to build, uh, like, they didn't have access to that type of, of research and those type of researchers. So what did they do? Well, they won. They sent a lot of researchers to go to, to the Soviet Union, but they also imported uh, a few Soviet researchers who could pass on their knowledge to the, the, uh, to the local Chinese uh, workforce. And by 1963, 1964, they did their first nuclear, uh, nuclear test, yes. nuclear detonation, became a, a nuclear power. So I, th I think in a similar sense, uh, I don't think many African uh, countries <laughs> are trying to build nu nu nuclear, <laughs> nuclear bombs right now. They're trying to build M-Pesas, which but, is true. Exactly. But, <laughs> but in the same sense, you, as Harriet was saying, things, who is to say that blockchain technology or um, AI, these type of things are not going to be as influential to the companies as nuclear power was to China in the 1960s. So though you do have people here who are specialized in those things, you have also people abroad who might have a deeper expertise or, or more experience who can then come in for a little bit of time, perform a type of skills transfer, as, as Harriet was saying, which will then, now, nowadays, no one is complaining about who is running the Chinese subway or who, uh, who, who is controlling the Chinese nuclear program. Of course, it's all Chinese people. But initially, it was not. So. Um, we're also we're, we're also trying to study history in a sense to see what are some other type of avenues and, and strategies that can be used to help uh, companies and, and countries grow. Even not even going far, Silicon Valley, the entire talent force is Indian, Asian, mostly Chinese, Indian, and Nigerian. Mm -hmm. Like that entire Silicon Valley is important talent, right? And it's recognizing that we need to have people with extreme skill set. And I will not even go for it. Like Facebook was founded by a you know, you know, sophomore dropout, right? But then um, once it became a bigger company, it needed to hire people. So it's also recognizing that as companies grow, even though they have an amazing CTO, CFO, they need to grow with the skill sets. Yeah. And I think that's where, if it, for you, again, going back to a thesis, how can we make African companies globally competitive? You need globally competitive talent. Mm -hmm. And that's where we're coming in and plugging in. And what would you say has been your biggest challenge so far, um, especially from the talent side? Um, are the internships free? Are they paid? Um, do you have uh, clients or companies who are skeptical? Uh, what's your, I guess, biggest challenge? Or what are the challenges that you've come across, mm. if any? Yeah. So. I would say at this point we've faced just a few, maybe just a few bureaucratic issues in in in, in terms of turnaround times. Mm -hmm. Both uh, when you're communicating with people in one time zone that is very far away from another time zone, maybe scheduling interviews or just getting getting in contact with people when you can't like knock on their door can be a little bit difficult. But the reception to our our program both. Uh, on the talent side as well as the the company side has been has been very receptive. Um, essentially, every person that we have talked to on the company side, where we say this is what we're offering, we have a very. Um, I, I think what we're offering is, is quite is quite easy to understand. It's not uh, we're not using a lot of big complicated um, jargon. Jargon, mm -hmm. yeah, to to try and. Uh, uh, try and trick trick people or, or, or convince people that what we're doing is is the, the next the next big thing is that we use language that everyone understands mm -hmm. or the concept that everyone understands and so far everyone that we've approached has been interested either in saying oh sign me up for um, this next summer intake or maybe they say oh we're not ready right now or uh, we have a few more things we have to get off our plate but we're, we're interested in exploring your options in the, in the future 
um, from the student side. Also, many people, um, even if they said, I, I already have plans for the summer or I already have plans for the next few months, I'm very interested in uh, coming through uh, later in the year or maybe during the next semester or something like that. So we've had a, a few challenges in terms of organizing things, but the reception on on both sides of, of the plate have been has, has been has been very good and very encouraging. Also like one of the most important thing is time beyond time zones. I think it's most of the people especially I think this is the culture that it has in the US where if you're looking for a job for the summer, which is in May, you you literally start looking for the job last year yeah. in October. Yeah. So by December, most of the people have already sealed the deal on what they want to do over the summer. And you haven't, so your entire January, some people literally take an entire class on looking for jobs. Like we had friends who would take three classes and the other class would be the interviews going across different cities to do interviews. So recruitment is a very, very timely affair in the US and most of these colleges. And and so given the 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 fact that we're dealing with student pool who have literally so many opportunities and they really want like a quick turn turnaround of like how you know, they want people who want to be like, we want to know whether we want to get into this company by now so that we can plan for our flights in May because they're paying for their flights as well. So I think that has been like to ensure that both sides know that, you know, these kids are already planning six months ahead of schedule that they want to work here. So, and it, that is also like a very good thing for the companies because they can start planning ahead. So it's also forcing companies, to, especially startups, to start putting structures in their companies because like you can imagine most of the companies' um, structure is such a big, especially when you're growing. So how then can we help companies start think, rethinking recruitment? I think we're working with different companies. We have startups, mid-sized companies, and bigger companies, large companies. So for startups, I think it's more like just working with them to just help them create a HR kind of branch system because most of the time you, when you're co-founder, you don't want to think about hiring as well. Mm -hmm. And your team is already working on tech and non-tech stuff. So we are coming in there as like structuring the entire kind of like the recruitment angle in terms of like getting them, you know, ensuring that everything is so seamless for them. So so this is how a quick turn, we have a very quick turnaround in terms of like it's less than a week. When you say you want inter interns and you give us the job description, so you're like, I want, I want, um, I want a data scientist with two years of experience. Uh, we'll, you know, you sign the contract and everything, and then afterwards we give you, you, we ask you the times that you're available. We give you a list of people that you can go through resumes, and then afterwards, um, you know, you you give us the times and we, we do the interviews as soon as possible. So we have like a very quick turnaround because we we acknowledge the students have to start planning for their flights. So I think one of the, the thing that we really need to work with closely is to ensure that there's that quick turnaround with the companies. And most of these companies, either it's bureaucratic or they're small companies that haven't come up with structure. So I think it's 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 interesting because that's what um that's the kind of culture we're trying to bring in mm -hmm. to this market it's um in terms of recruitment because I, I think most of you know how when you're the communication between companies and interns is usually between zero non-existent to six months right because the turnaround is not as fast as most of this market wants so how can we ensure that the, there's like that in terms of hiring we create this quick turnaround hiring structure mm -hmm. so that's what we're really working deeply on and what about um, remote teams? Do you uh, find that some companies want people to work remotely or that they, you know, what's that process like? Because I'm guessing you wouldn't necessarily have a remote intern, mm. right? Why not? Why not? So it, yeah. that happens. Or, oh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. So some of the companies, as I mentioned, they have different ones. Mm -hmm. If you're a tech company, there's a high chance that 
your tech person doesn't have to be here. Yeah. If you're a strategy company that is doing marketing research, you want your person to be here, mm-hmm. right? If you're fundraising and you don't need your fundraising in Beijing, <laughs> your person must be in Beijing. Yeah. So it depends with the needs of the company. So we're working with the needs of the company. Ours is more of a need base. If you're, if you're looking for someone who can go do research in your company as a PhD researcher and they their times is different, like whatever you want as a company, we'll find, we'll match you with the perfect 99.9 percent yeah. perfect <laughs> <laughs> candidate who can actually come and solve for that mm-hmm. so we are more like again how can we help you as a company right how can we help you make that milestone that you really want to you know come up with or make sure that you want to solve without spending much because to be honest hiring a data scientist in this market good luck finding one as a as a as a as a startup company that is already cash trapped, mm. right? So how can we best help you be able to even do that scaling um, project? How can we help you figure out whether that strategy is even the right strategy? How can we help you even build an entire financial model with someone who has had experience building couple models and someone is going to give you a strategy, you know, strategy document of how to handle your next 10, five, four years, whatever you want. So that's why remote working is also dependent on the company needs. Okay, and to ask you a question on the range of the talent that you source, like so far it's clear from this podcast that you are, you really source a lot of technical talent. Mm. But aside from that, is there any other sort of skill set like maybe marketing, yeah. a business, all of this and is there talent that's really hard to find that's in demand in Kenya aside or in Africa that is aside from technical? Soft skills. Soft skills. Yes. So we were we were talking to we have been talking with a lot of clients mm. a lot of people who hire and most of the people want critical thinking skills problem solving skills they want someone who can present a powerpoint they want someone who can lead a team and you're an intern right mm. so they want someone who can come up with they want they don't want like again going back to i want things to get done so soft skills in the way of like, how, how are you able to respond to an email in time? How are you able to communicate to a client? How are you able to sell a product? Mm-hmm. How are you able to critically solve a problem, right? How are you able to approach a problem with a different angle? How are you able to even come up with an entire structure of how you came up to that answer? So it's more like, how can you, like there's this jargon that's used in most of the consulting companies. It's, it's coming up with, with more like a methodology of how you get your answer. Yeah. And sometimes I think also like our curriculum going, I'm not blaming it too much, but like I do think that we're trained to just memorize. Mm-hmm. We're not trained to critically think and come mm-hmm. up with a methodology on how we got there. So sometimes I want to know, one of the case studies that people ask is, so how many phones do Ken- Nairobi people buy every day? You guess? Mm-hmm. Then they ask you, how did you get there? Right? So most people will be saying the population on Nairobi, the age between 20, you know, like the, 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 the how much you earn, this range. You will have to come up with a methodology on how you get there. That's a strategy. That's mm-hmm. critical thinking. And I think that's what a lot of companies are looking for beyond tech. Even though it's a tech person, can this person think critically on how to come up with a strategy on selling something? Like mm-hmm. some of these soft skills that we are left to figure out when you get into companies is things that a lot of these companies just want in the beforehand, right? And I think that's where beyond tech, we usually have a lot of clients who are looking for strategists, finance people, people who can come up with a fundraising strategy, someone who can uh, go out and beyond and think of like a way to get into a new market, Mm -hmm. right? Someone, like if you ask a Kenyan, for example, 
how you know sometimes i feel like we think that kenya is very small like mm-hmm. there's everything but like how can someone get into drc congo right mm-hmm. right do you do you do research about drc congo to figure out whether they need these things mm-hmm. do you know the market of drc congo like you find a lot of people that know these things and they're not africans and i'm like we don't read a lot so it's so it's it's mostly just you know just being a very critical thinker and just thinking outside the box both tech and non-technically mm-hmm. te- technically and what's the one thing that you wish uh companies would know about finding talent and because you're, you're the problem that you're trying to solve is i guess two facing mm-hmm. what's the other thing that you wish uh talent would know about companies uh looking to hire because i think for me it's uh especially with like kenyan talent um i also work in recruitment and one thing i've noticed is we don't really polish our resumes like just simple things like grammar um you'll find someone has written oh um i'm very uh good at java flameworks and not java frameworks right so like these things i i don't know whose fault it is is it the talent for not being uh keen or not having attention to detail is it the schools that are not training uh people to polish up on their resumes and to just focus on passing exams and you know getting qualifications and not really the softer side of of i guess getting hired uh what's the one thing that you guys wish each side would know you know, Harvard has an entire career service office Yeah, where people go do mock interviews. You mm-hmm. send your resumes. They have resume workshops. They have cover letter workshops. They even have like this PDF of like the words that you need to use in your resume, the verbs that you need to use in your resume. So we have, we have read so many resumes for both Kenyans and non-Kenyans and people with Ivy League backgrounds. And you can tell the difference. Yeah. Like a resume should be one page. Right. Like one page. I've I don't seen want to read five 16 pages. page resumes. I've seen 32. And I just reject. I'm like, <laughs> I'm still reading. Like, yeah. and sometimes I just want to read that resume and yeah. see oh, you have, you worked on this particular specific project, or even put your GitHub link, like you have your LinkedIn. Like, you know, I just want to ensure that sometimes you ha- we have to re- re- remember that companies are reading through thousands yeah. and thousands of resumes. I remember this conversation I was having on Safaricom, I think receives over 100,000 resumes for its recruit, for its um, graduate training program. I'm not exactly mm-hmm. sure if that's the mm-hmm. number, but it can be more. And they take... How many people do they take every graduate in, internship year? I think they take less than 50 people, like less than 20 people. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine how it took to to boil down from 100,000 resumes to specifically 20. I mean, we have all these problems in our system, but like yeah. it tells you so much that like, people are not reading 25 pages of resumes, mm-hmm. pages, right? People want to read one page that is like very clear on exactly what you do. Like someone, I think Oprah said that when you're putting your resume down, your resume should be a story. Like I should go through your resume and see this is this is what this person want to achieve and this is what they've been doing to achieve that. So this person kind of want to become X and they have done they worked with this consulting company or whatever they they did. Uh, they worked with this consulting company um, for a couple of months and then they worked with this fin- uh, they did research with this person they volunteer like it's a story right. And some of the things that we say is that you have to do research on that company before you even apply. And I remember yesterday we went to this ALX, uh, ALX um, recruitment meet where the ALX students were meeting mm-hmm. the recruiters. Mm-hmm. And one of the things people we were talking about recruiters is that 
you have to do research on the company you're applying to. Yeah. You cannot just apply to companies and send resumes and cover letters and you'll forget to even change the name of the company that you're, wow. <laughs> that you're applying yeah. to. You have to do research. You have to meet these people and get to know whether they want to work with this company, whether you, that you, want the, you like the culture of the company. I think, it's like, I think we need to t- take time to just think, do research on the companies we're applying to. But again, you can't, we don't have, you know, if you think about an ordinary Kenyan graduate student who is graduating from college, they don't have the luxury of doing research. They want a job now, right? Right? Because it's hard, Nairobi is hard, right? It's like you want a job now, you don't want to think through all these different things. But then I think it's also t- taking a step back and just asking yourself, what do you want to do with yourself? Mm. And like, which companies do you want to work for? Have you done research on these companies? Like, have you talked to one or two people? Do you have a LinkedIn page and you have a very nice profile, right? Have you thought through your resume before you just submit it? Yeah. Also, from the from talking from the company perspective, I've been amazed at the amount of companies when I've talked to them about what we do, and they say, "Oh, well, people would be interested in coming here," or like, "Oh, someone someone who has the chance to, or someone who's worked uh, on Wall Street has is interested in coming to Nairobi," mm-hmm. as if there's no value in coming in coming. It, 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 it just it just surprises me because as someone who's been um, in like the Ivy League ecosystem, there's so many people who have heard this, uh, this this Africa's rising narrative. Whether that's a true narrative or not is another is another question. But like they've heard this 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 narrative of Africa rising. They've heard this narrative of of Africa is the next China. Africa is the next India in terms of if you want to invest or if you want to uh, make like, exploit a lot of good opportunities. Like that's the place you need to go. So many people are interested in coming here, yet they don't have um, yet they don't necessarily have that avenue. Mm. Um, so it it amazes me when I hear multiple times and from from many from many companies saying, um, oh, I'm surprised that somebody would would want to come here when. Um, I think a lot of a lot of people come here and they see a lot of opportunity and they, they see a lot of um, great chances to to at least experiment or, or, or make success. So for the companies, I would say, uh, of course, people want to come here. So don't don't undervalue yourself or undervalue the place that you come from or undervalue um, any of the uh, like any, any of any of your background. Um, of course, of course, people want to come here. So um, yeah, just something to think of going forward. There's an example. The Harvard Business School pays pays a student hundred thousand dollars for five years if you want to come to Africa. Mm. Schools offer grants up to ten thousand dollars for people to just go to Africa and like explore. <laughs> and that tells you so much about even for our local talent is that you you're in you're in the best ecosystem to be honest. I know it's you know sometimes it doesn't look like it's the best ecosystem, but this is the ecosystem where everyone's want want to be in. And I remember there was a period in time I think in the 70s where everyone in the U.S. wanted to go to Japan. Yeah. And now you go there in most of these schools, people I think in the eight, 90s people wanted to go to China, mm-hmm. and now people really are looking for opportunities to come into Africa. So you can tell so much about the kind of skill set that is willing to come in. We have people who one of our one of the people that we have in our database is someone who worked in an e-commerce company who started at his own e-commerce company in India for three, four years. It failed and then went to business school. So if that person comes into an e-commerce company here, he has... He knows how to run an ecosystem, an e-commerce company. He started his own e-commerce company and he wants to work with you. And he's willing to pay for his own flights to come here and work with you. 
that is the kind of things that I think most companies need. I, I know there's a lot of question in terms of like how do they how do we ensure that they are able to you know they're able to there's this whole idea of like cross cultural communication like ensuring that everyone is in the same page and you know we have different cultures and cultural margins. But I think most of these people I think also like we are working with them to just also better understand that. Um, you know, a lot of these people have amazing business ideas and they want people to help them bring them to light. And and I think most of them want to be part of an impactful ecosystem. And you, when you talk to these people there and be like most of them just want to create impact. And they are, one of the students was saying that I just don't want to work with these, you know, data hungry companies. I want to work with a company that is actually cares about education. Mm -hmm. So you can tell that people really are craving for impact that is really, you know, people want something bigger than money sometimes people want to have you know add value to the world and bring in good things into the world some people are very keen on that and i think the continent gives opportunities to actually achieve that and that's the kind of people we're working with mm. additionally i just want to go back to uh something that victor said earlier about asking about skill sets yeah so uh, and the type of talent that we source so we're, we're always trying to build um, our various pipelines, both in terms of like sectors as well as countries that we're in um, and also from the talent side. And so, uh, yes, we do do, and we have a lot of applicants who are very good in uh, tech and like strategy, marketing, finance type of things. But we're also trying to provide opportunities on both sides in sectors that people might not necessarily think of initially. So one of the current leads that we have is uh, someone in Uganda who, uh, she's a woman who is really trying to tackle the stigma of kind of mental health, uh, psychiatry, uh, psychology, um, these type of things which um, are not really, which are still kind of fringe uh, topics in, in Uganda. Um, and so someone that she's interested in is someone who has maybe like a neuroscience background or a psychiatry background or a psychology background, something like this. So these are other kind of more obscure skill sets that we have plenty of people in our database. Um, and we know that there's a growing need for these type of uh, skill sets um, in the regions that we serve. So uh, that's just one example. But like while we do do tech and strategy now, um, as, as kind of our main focus is, we're always trying to build uh, new avenues and new uh, sectors in which in which we can engage and uh, deploy. So after job is actually like a good idea, innovative idea, yeah. But now question is, most companies won't get the opportunity to um, be able to the smaller companies will not be able to get the opportunity to have this. Um, technical students come and help the company grow. So what advice do you have for the Kenyan students who are now working in those companies that can, they can be able to do better if the companies cannot be able to afford um, external help to come and um, work with it? So is it, does that mean that those companies are lost or is there something you can be able to do? Um, now for the African kids. Mm. Well, first I just, I just wanna say for um, for smaller companies, we do we do we do try and become as um, uh, I'll say affordable and accessible to companies of all sizes. So we do have, I think, how, how small is the smallest companies are working with? What do you think? Do you want it small in terms of like the number of employees? Because we have people with two employees, both in revenue and yeah. in terms of the company Wait, size, like your team. Pre-revenue companies. Oh, okay. companies are trying to figure out 
themselves. Pre-revenue. Yeah, people were literally, one of the companies that we're working with is 16, less than 16 months old. Mm-hmm. And he's trying to just, you know, like pilot, prototype the, compa- the, the, the company, uh, prototype the innovation or prototype the app, the product that he has. And, and he needs people who can strategize, people who can be software developers. And our, pre- sorry? I do think it's um, most of the most of the people who are looking for the services are people who literally just are progressive in how they think. I think that's kind of I hope most of the, com- the companies really are progressive because some companies don't want to scale. Right? Some people just want to be just, you know, owning the space by themselves and working everything by themselves. But some companies want to scale across different counties. Some companies are thinking of scaling into from 50 schools to a thousand schools. Yeah. And those are the people who recognize that they have this vision of scaling and they need one, two, three people. Because we approach people who say that they have a problem, that they need someone to come and help them solve. So we have one of the students, one of the companies that is trying to, um, one of the companies that we worked with. With, um, is a company that is in the edtech space, and um, you remember in high school how your report cards were all written in paper, <laughs> high school, yeah. and sometimes you, the report card will never reach the, the, your parents because something happened between <laughs> between your school I didn't and the parents. That. You don't remember that? Okay. <laughs> Selective memory. Academies and primaries. <laughs> but the point is, uh, this guy recognized that there's a problem in the space of like, especially analytics of um, your grades and your performance, mm-hmm. and he came up with he. It's more like an ERP CRM system where most of the schools purchase this um, this this software and the 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 teachers can be able to log in and input grades of their class that they're teaching and then class teacher will confirm that everyone has done that and then the school dean will confirm that every form one to form four has been graded so he has all this data that he has at his disposal because he's working with different companies and he's thinking of how can I create a data strategy because I want to because I'm envisioning that my company's uh, my comp my company's gold is in its data. That is a kind of the progressive minds that we want to work with. Like we want you to, you know, we want you to approach us with a problem and tell us that actually though, I've been thinking of like expanding to Zimbabwe, but I don't know exactly how I'm going to do. And I'm looking for people who are from Zimbabwe or people who have this expertise of doing this. So it's it's people who, co-founders or people who, who have teams that are more mm-hmm. progressive and willing to bring in people to help them solve and, the problems. And, and for the pre, for the pre, yeah. Yes, pre-revenue companies, right? How? What's the payment model? Like, uh, do they, how do they get people who are volunteering? Intern? What's the? Uh, how do they? How are they able to afford the needed talent? Okay, so going into the pricing model, I'll explain our current pricing model. Um, I guess I can explain maybe the student side, and then Harriet can explain the uh, the company side. Um, so. Because we've both been students um, looking for these opportunities, and then we've also now been companies uh, using these opportunities, uh, we want to make it as affordable and accessible for all the parties involved. Uh, so the way that we are currently, uh, the way that we're, we're currently allocating for students is, students are responsible for their flight to East Africa. Uh, if they're not from this region or not from the country where they're working, they will also be responsible for any visa fees as well as any immunizations, vaccinations, medicine type of things. Um, so that's what the students are responsible for. And for the companies, you can imagine like if you put me in Kampala, I would not even know where to start looking for housing. 
because I don't even know which is the best town to be in in Kampala. Mm -hmm. So we usually ask companies to offer housing. Mm -hmm. And most of the time, if you have two people who are coming to intern for you, the housing cost is usually very low. Or sometimes you even host your people inside your houses. Like one of the things that these people are looking for, the students are looking for is a cultural immersion program as well. So they're looking to experience Silicon Savannah. Most of them have never been to the continent, right? It's like, how then can we ensure that they're having an experience? And also like we talked about that knowledge and skills transfer is just having them very integrated in the team in such a way that they're able to you know contribute to the team and culture of that team so so we ask this uh, we usually ask the companies to offer housing and stipends so most of this uh, some of the companies are able to afford offering stipends to the company to the students because you don't want a student to be hungry for the entire summer and then mm-hmm. You don't want hungry people. Mm-hmm. So I think most of the companies, particularly startups, they have. You can imagine they have food. Sometimes they offer in the offices. They have, they have stipends that they do. They do give to their students. And Nairobi, trust me, for someone who has been in different cities, Nairobi is kind of cheap if you use transportation. That is, you know, if you live close to the place that you're working and you, you food you can find in Kibanda. How much is it? Is it like mm-hmm. less than a thousand dollars, a thousand shillings per week. So I think it's easy for someone to have. And most of the people have grants when they're coming in as well so students are applying for grants to come in to be able to like help them survive this part of the world so so people get grants from schools um, and then the only fee that you pay us is a matching fee so the matching fee and like we we work with you in terms of like figuring out how we can depending on your on your on your depending on your revenue model or like however you're working with in terms of like whether you're a mid-sized company so pre-revenue companies we work with you in terms of like what is the project that you're working with or like we have different price points for companies and for companies as, as i mentioned some companies offer flights and housing for their students some companies offer just housing for their students and a little bit of a stipend yeah so it depends on we acknowledge that we're working with this you know kenyans who are also trying to like understand you know how they can be able to scale companies you know with knowing that the costs are extremely cash trapped so we work with you because you're also a startup as well so we understand the struggle <laughs> and we as i said we also get our own talent from this pool so we don't we're not preaching water and drinking wine but we actually we actually use we outsource our most of our skill sets from this particular pool that we have from our website for example we had someone who had worked with a kenyan actually um she's she's in cornell and she's a ui ux researcher and she came in and worked through with us for three weeks in terms of how can we better have a better user experience for you know for students and for companies that access our platforms so it's also like acknowledging that we want we and we know what startups go through and we want to work with them to just ensure that they're able to scale in you know they're able to meet their you know goals or milestones they want to access so i had a question when it comes to the key key um keywords you look for you know on when you're comparing somebody's cv um this is because i went for an interview and they told me my cv came up top on our system i don't know if most companies oh, get congrats, to use congratulations yeah <laughs> well thanks but um <laughs> the it came out top so is that like something specifically you key in into the system or you look for as employees to to get your students to get um as i mentioned verbs like um verbs are very important when um for let's say you're looking for a managerial position right and you have to have something like managing or leading or governing like you know the words that the verbs that actually showcase that you did something in the past in your past experiences that lead to you being a manager and and going back to the keywords and verbs, uh, I think 
when for example in your experience lot you usually say your past experiences and say for example um i worked with this company where i led a team of 45 i led a team of five people to um to analyze um, data and come up with an algorithm that could read XYZ. So one of the things that you, you're told and add to structure your resume is to have a verb of like something that you're very specifically looking for. If you're looking for a leadership role, if you're looking for a research, so I analyzed, I researched, I did this, anything that I, I, I pitched, I led, I, it's very specific verbs. And once you're able to also show the outcome, the impact of whatever you did. So, so I, I investigated this, 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 and we, I wrote a report that did X, Y, Z. So I think the most important thing when you're structuring your resume is that that's why you have to focus on what company are you looking into, what role are you looking into getting hired for, and what does that role encompass? Like I know there's other apps like Glassdoor and different other apps that to, to, you know, like tell you that people share the experiences of working in these companies and tell you how exactly the interview questions were. But the point is that you need to do research on that company and, and that role so that you can figure out exactly what the job description is looking for. And depending on that, because the job description is like a question mark, it's, it's a question paper, and your resume is an answer, right? It's like the job description is looking for someone with five years of experience with who knows how to do JavaScript and this PHP. So it means that your resume has to answer those questions. So your resume has to have either intermediate skills in Java or you'd analyze something that is data related. Like for example, when you're looking for data scientists, we are looking for people who have actually analyzed data, people who have come up with algorithms and people who have tested them. So people have wrote papers on something that is very specific to the job description. So it's also like read the job description, know what exactly what the role comes in and what exactly it's looking for and answer that question with your resume with exact verbs that say you have XYZ experience for that particular company. Harriet, have you received any, <coughs> Harriet, have you received any pushback from like Kenyan graduates or um, possibly like bringing more talent Market. Most of the people, whenever I have conversations with them, especially as uh, Trey mentioned that we have also applicants from Kenyan universities, even Tanzanian universities and Nigerian universities, as well as we had applicants from Algeria, Togo, um, we had applicants from Ghana. We, we have different applicants in the continent. And, sorry, and it's not, whenever I'm having conversations with them, with the students, I tell them it's more like, we have a program where we also upskilling the local students, the local talent, to work with these people in the specific countries and have that knowledge and skills transfer, as well as have, I usually say, remember in the day when we had pen pals and we had people we had connections or contacts with in different countries, we're bringing it back to fashion in a very professional sense in such a way that you have someone who you know in that network who's going to even be helpful for your future. So if you have someone in your network who's going to be working in Silicon Valley, there's a time you might come up with a company and you need someone to invest in your company and the first person you call is literally that person that you met um, using the AfriJob network. I'll give a very relevant example to my, uh, that happened when I was in college. I did a program over the summer in South Korea, my freshman summer. And when I was in South Korea, I lived with this um, girl in South Korea. She's South Korean and she was the one who was like just showing me around. She was the one who was helping me out and stuff for, three, for eight weeks. And uh, and we were catching up um, a few months ago and she's working in the fintech space in South Korea. 
when will I ever, like if I want to look for a job in South Korea, if I want to look for an investor in South Korea, if I want to, you want to travel to South Korea, the first person I'll go to is that particular friend of mine that I met during this particular summer program that I was doing because she knows, she's well versed with that particular country and she was the one who can help me navigate that particular country. Whether it's investor sense, whether it's my skill sets, whether it's anything that involves me just wanting to go to South Korea or get something in South Korea. That is what we're bringing to the continent. I think that's why a lot of programs, in even in Kenya, they have, you know, they send students to universities or high schools in the U.S. and different places or for them to have that exposure and that network. We live in a globally connected village. Like, it's about time for us to even get those networks in our circles, even in the most, in the most, in the most real sense, having someone who is a Vietnamese. Like, there's a one time I, I was talking to a Vietnamese friend of mine and he was telling me about the problems I have in Vietnam. He was telling me how they have tuk-tuks there, how they have this struggle of like Uber has not, they don't have an Uber border yet like we have here. And I was like, if we had a Kenyan company like Maramoja, which is already a Kenyan company, I think founders are not Kenyan, but it's a company here, but it's registered here. But that Maramoja can also be viable in Vietnam. Mm. Like if they had someone in Vietnam, for example, if they were scaling outside Kenya and they're trying to become a globally competitive company, the person that they met through this particular program would be the first person they would approach. So how can we bring those networks into this part of the world? And that's what builds better Silicon savannas. That's how you build better ecosystems. Is such a way that you're creating networks across the continent. Because for you to build globally competitive companies, your products have to be consumed across the continent and beyond the continent, right? The reason why Amazon is a globally competitive company is because Amazon is being used even in Kenya, and it's an American company and shareholders that are diverse with employees that are diverse. If you talk to most of these companies that are tech companies that are based in the UK or in the US, most of the tech people are Indians, right? So how can we ensure that we're getting the top skills, how can we ensure that we are bringing in networks closer to our continent so that once we need to expand, once we need to scale across, the, once we need to get more money across different places or investors or people can consume our products, we have those networks already in place to ensure that it's seamless. So that's, that's exactly why I don't think we should be as a backlash, as more as an opportunity for Africans themselves to start working with networks across the universe because it's no longer an Africa problem. Like global warming, for example, it's not an African problem. It's a universal pro problem. Data is a universal problem now, right? Facebook was off a couple of days ago and it affected everyone. Mm. Nowadays, we're living in globally competitive everything. So at the end of the day, it's never Kenyan or hopefully soon, but it's mostly global citizenship. And I think it's time to embrace it to become globally competitive for us. I, I just additionally adding on to that, I think in, in theory, that's a, a very good question, but I think it's also very important to look at, at the track record of, of AfroJobs so far, um, and not just our track record, but also um, where we see ourselves as going. We have many ideas for the company that uh, we will expand upon in the future, which will become, um, which will become more, more apparent at that time. But for now, over the winter program, we placed two Kenyans to come back from abroad at two, um, to work at two companies here. Additionally, um, one of our biggest uh, one of our, our biggest clients at this at this point, a uh, consulting company uh, called Dahlberg, is interested in just sourcing Kenyan talent for the Kenya office, Ethiopian talent for the Ethiopia office, and uh, Tanzanian talent for the Tanzania office, which we have done our, our best to provide. So I think when you look at a lot of the placements that we've done and a lot of the placements that we're doing, you will see that local talent, or not necessarily local talent, but at least local talent in the sense that they are from these places, maybe not that they are currently here right now, um, 
is being placed at these um, organizations and being placed at these institutions. Um, and we'll see how the development of the company goes as time goes on. But uh, I think it, it's, it's very relevant to ask uh, what, we've, what we've been doing um, and how we've been doing it um, as opposed to what we could possibly be doing. Yeah. You guys have probably looked at um, like the field of automation and how it affects jobs more than most people. Um, I'd love to hear like some of your thoughts on um, like, do you think Africa is is ready, or are we other are companies aligned, um, like, to prepare the youth for like some jobs, like for the shift jobs? Not all the jobs are going to disappear, but like a large number of them um, will be replaced. Um, like, yeah, just give us some of your thoughts on, on that, on like automation taking over jobs and stuff like that. That's my favorite conversation about the fourth industrial revolution. Um, Africa has been left in a couple of revolutions, mm. <laughs> the first, the second, the third, <laughs> and now the fourth is here, and we haven't even, um, you know, we don't even build our own railway system, right? Um, so I, I do think the fourth industrial revolution, according to my understanding, beyond automation, right? We have data, we have big data, we have AI, we have a lot of things that are both autonomy and autonomous, it's completely different, but from my perspective, it's Africa, we all know it's going to have the largest young population, right? And the problem about our population and our skill set, you know, everyone was so excited about um, China becoming a, a completely different economy that is not manufacturing focused because people are thinking that manufacturing industries will move to Africa because we have cheap labor. But then you, 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 uh, you when you do a little bit of digging, you come to realize that we actually have expensive labor compared to like a lot of um, Southeast Asian countries like Vietnam, Pakistan, and all these different companies, countries that are closer to, Af to closer to China, meaning that all their factories are going there. So going back to your question about um, the future of work in terms of like aspect of automation, I don't think we'll be deeply affected by automation because even the jobs we're doing, an example was given is that a large percentage of the people who produce agriculture, which is most of our countries are agricultural-based economies, we still do it small-scale farmers. We don't even have the machines to even harvest tea that are being used by small-scale farmers. People still use hand, right? In, like going back to like even before we even get to machines that are that are actually doing that job. So I, I think from my perspective of like what then is the role of the continent in the fourth industrial revolution is that most of the things that I would see will happen in the continent is aggregation of work. In, in, and that's where you're seeing, because a lot of our economy is informal. That's why you see a lot of border border people operating, but now because of taxify border and all these different ride healing services, everyone has been aggregated in a very formalized way. So from my perspective of like the future of the continent, I don't see us being affected much about the especially for the automation part. And because if you think about it, we don't produce a lot of cars, right? We don't do a lot of shipping for um, Amazons. Like we most of the labor in textiles, we don't even produce a lot of clothes, right? So every sector that is going to be affected by automation is not based in the continent. We were trying to get there because even our, our big four agenda is manufacturing. But like, I do think that Africa, it's about time we start taking in technology and innovation because that's where a lot of like, this continent has a lot, it has a lot of data that is still on paper or lacking that has not been put into, you know, into, 
into even Excel pages that can be even be used to analyze with big data. So I think we're lagging behind because we are not, we haven't, we haven't been exposed to technology for a long time. But as you can see from Kenya, where 80% of the 80% of, of the adult population plus has M-Pesa, or not M-Pesa, but like mobile money, which is technically M-Pesa here. But the point that I'm trying to make is that we're not going to be affected by a lot of these problems that a lot of developed countries have. I know Germany and the US are worried about automation per se, but we're going to be, we need to be worried about the fact that we will be consuming most of this globally tech or the future of jobs. We'll be consuming most of this product, but will not be producing it because our skill set is not in the level of analyzing data. Our skill set are not in the level of like doing AI. Our skill set does not have all these future skills that everyone needs to be able to become very competitive in the future. So I, from my perspective is that we this is the time, and I see Rwanda doing it, and they think a lot of countries need to emulate Rwanda. Rwanda has open coding schools. that They started this coding school a couple weeks ago where they opened it with 60 students straight from Form 4, their Form 4, and they have 30 girls and 30 boys, and they're planning on opening more schools like that across different provinces to do coding in data, in data and cybersecurity. Mm -hmm. That is literally them training the next workforce of the future. Right, I think um, I think from my perspective, we need to copy what India did, because right now when you look at the global tech space, India is the one that is leading, especially with skill set. Nowadays, everyone is going to India beyond China to like even Amazon was in a kind of like um, a prize. They were trying to acquire Flipkart, which is a Indian company based in Indian e-commerce company and Walmart took it. But the point is people are producing amazing products in India because the government took time to enforce tech, tech skills for a long time, a couple of years, a couple of decades in India. So I do think right now is the best time to start training the future of the skills and on the skills of the future because we're not worried much about automation because we're not there yet in manufacturing. We should be worried about data, AI, all these things that will create another form of like data colonialism that they call it mm. in the, in nowadays they call it data colonialism because it's a very interesting concept. I can also add to that. <laughs> so I'm not uh, very well versed in automation, um, but it is, uh, I like to hear experts talk about it and, and try to keep uh, an open mind. So I was reading a book recently about uh, universal basic uh, income and one of the uh, one of the points that the author was was making is that we need to make sure that we don't fall into the Luddite fallacy, fallacy um, which comes from a term of a group of an organization of people who in the 1850s in England were destroying factories and um, other other major mechanizations because they were afraid of, of taking jobs. So uh, the automation or machines taking our jobs uh, conversation is not new. Um, one of the one of the points that the the, the book was making that was because this um, because this conversation is not new maybe uh, we we don't need to be as afraid of it um, as we are at this point the book was making however one of the most successful uh, or one of the I want to say what's most successful. One of the prime examples of universal basic income actually is in Kenya. Of uh, there's an organization I forget what it's called, but there's an organization that gives um, people in a certain community a certain amount of money um, every uh, every week or every month or something, and lets them do what, what do with it whatever they want. Um, theoretically, the program should be doing well, but uh, due to cultural differences, a lot of uh, a lot of people in the community don't want to take the money because they feel as it's um, 
they feel as though there's some there's some strings it's attached, or it's a, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a trick or, so, or something <laughs> like that. But um, I think th this could also be some type of um, type of solution where even though universal basic income is something that's thought of as something that would be a uh, solution in uh, like Western Europe or, or the United States, the fact that there are um, experiments being carried out in the developing world mean that uh, there could be possibilities for that here as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, thanks for So to unfairly represent, um, to unfairly misquote what you said, Harriet, um, we will not lose any jobs because we didn't have them to begin with. <laughs> you see that, um, like if it was a newspaper headline, would that summarize? I think it's policy-wise, right? It's like, for me, I'm seeing it from more of like a policy perspective. Like, our current government is pushing for manufacturing. I think it's important, right? It's like, we need some form of skills everywhere. Like, um, like going back to the conversation about, we had the SGR that was built um, a couple by the Chinese, and we, we wanted to see people at least have some skills transfer in such a way that we can be able to be repairing these things when anything happens, right? And it's more like how can we structure our curriculum my point of view of like curriculums they reflect what kind of jobs or what kind of culture that we want to our, our kids or you know our students of the future or like our workforce of the future wants to have and that's why i'm going back to the tech space and saying that india had to create tech people so that they can create tech skills of the future so if our curriculum right now if you look at it it's like what is it bringing into the workforce right and that's why our government is pushing for manufacturing because we want to create more manufacturing they want to create more manufacturing jobs so that people can go into manufacturing right but then the problem is that how manufacturing works and in this global value chain of manufacturing is that people go for the cheapest way of manufacturing goods, right? And right now, that's why it's all positioned in East, in Asia, mostly in China, which is slowly going down, and now Southeast Asia, the bulk. If you think about H&M, the only factory that they have here is in Ethiopia, because Ethiopia has been pushing for manufacturing. I'm seeing it from a broader point of view of the global scope of, these jobs are not even in, in the continent. These jobs are still in Southeast Asia. The jobs that we are still waiting for manufacturing jobs, they have not moved there. Because the reason why H&M would come here is because one, it, our wage is extremely low, and we have, we have, you know, we have like the policies in place to ensure that it's closer and you know it's easier for them to even, you know, have sweatshops running here, right? So that in terms of manufacturing and like the end of manufacturing, that's why I'm saying the jobs are not into the continent. Majority of these are not this part of the world. And that's why policies are in place in Ethiopia to bring them into that part of the world. Policies are in place in South Africa to have more manufacturing jobs. Right now, we're still agricultural. We're still not even in the next revolution. That's why it's begun with Africa has been left out in several revolutions. So yes, they're not yet here, but the governments are, a lot of governments are focused on manufacturing, which is good because you're building the skills that you need. But then if the jobs in China are being automated, will they ever get here? Should, what then exactly? So, what should the continent then be worrying about? I think, from my perspective, it's like from policy point of view, is that government should be focusing the way Rwanda is focusing on like building skills of the future, because that's where our young population in 2050 will be the most productive globally, in terms of the global value chains. We'll be producing these 
I don't know that the Facebook of the future, I don't know whether to be augmented then, but I know Google has already started with AR, playing around with AR, but these are the things we need to start working on. And right now, a lot of robotics and I think drones are being manufactured in China because a lot of research, RD is going to that to companies and a lot of money is being pushed for that, right? Huawei is getting a lot of money to even think about 4G, 5G, sorry, right? In our government, I don't even know where we can start, right? It's like, where do we start? We start with 2G, we start with 1G research. But the point is now we need to start focusing on like, when, when in 2050, what type of countries do we want to become? China has a very interesting way of looking in the future. They look at it in 100 years. I think we, start need, we need to come up with 100-year visions. But again, we have a poly, governments change up every five years. But like, countries need to start thinking about themselves in the next, not even 2030, beyond 2030. Where do you want your workforce to be? How then can you create a curriculum that produces such workforce? So that's that. Yeah, it's not misquoting it. It's more like seeing it in a very globally perspective that the jobs are not. We are not yet China in terms of like everything is not made in Africa yet. So what can we make from Africa? I think that's a question I would put out there for policymakers. Thanks, Aaron. And also, Jay, just you touched on UBI. Have you seen any successful experiments around the globe, not just in Kenya? Um. Mm, uh, okay, I know that there, I, to my knowledge, there have been, or there have been increasingly more and more ex uh, successful experiments, but I, I cannot recall at this moment. I know that there is currently in the U.S. a, uh, a candidate who is running on, on UBI as kind of the, the main center of his platform. Um, he's not getting that much media coverage, uh, but... Uh, you think he's been on a few, on a few he, really big podcasts? And he 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 he's been he's been on a he's been on a few, but um, I think given the the impact of of what UBI could mean uh, for for the country, I don't think he's getting. Uh, it's the the coverage that he's getting is not representative of the impact that he could he could bring um, for for various reasons. But he has gotten uh, enough uh, donations to be on the on the debate stage, so maybe that will cast the the um maybe that will cast the the discussion of ubi as as a greater national topic once uh, he gets more of a national president okay um and also do you think um ubi also like it has a lot to do with the structure and the systems in place in a country mm. because um i don't know if if you also paid attention to like the political landscape in kenya but especially right now there's a lot um, there's a lot wrong with the systems. It makes uh, like paying taxes, like like contributing to a criminal organization, basically. So like I I, I believe <laughs> yeah I, I believe that if um, you put money aside for universal basic income, uh, most of that money is not getting to the people who really need it. Okay, that, that that's a fair that's a fair point, but it, it might not be necessarily taking money uh, and putting it aside as it is redistributing money that is is already being uh, used in, in other. It's already areas. being redistributed in creative <laughs> ways. <laughs> yeah. So I, I I would say I'm not I'm not familiar enough with the Kenyan political uh, landscape landscape to make to make a comment on that. Um, maybe uh, with like my own country, I, I, I could make a comment, um, but I would I would have to uh, better uh, familiarize myself with the Kenyan political landscape in order to make a make a comment on, on such a question.
uh, one question I have is from experience from running after job so far, what are the greatest the greatest lessons you've learned? Either when it comes to uh, the relative the specific skill gaps in the country, uh, and how exactly what exactly can be done to fill these gaps from a grassroots level. Shit. <laughs> from a grassroots level, especially uh, specifically to the education system. I think, I mean, we have basically been having this conversation about the the curriculum that was supposed to be changed, right? Mm-hmm. And and one of the things I remember from a conversation that was happening um, in Meta, what about what's next education is that this country. Sometimes whenever I'm having conversation, I'm like, wow, like if you think it from even the perspective of like the laptop idea was interesting, right? It's like, but I, like it's like, it started and then you don't even know what, what happened in between. Was it a political, was it a more like political oriented in terms of like it wasn't meant to even work? Like, you know, sometimes you wonder what, why we're getting ourselves into these amazing, interesting projects and then they're never completed ever, most of the times. So we do have visionaries in, in our governments, people who, who, who want to disrupt the system and the entire curriculum. But then you're faced with challenges because, you know, like we have weird governments in place and system in place where nothing can be affected in scale. But like, for example, whenever if you, I've talked to a lot of interesting people in the space, in the edtech space, they're thinking of ways of like upskilling talent, right? They're coming up with, with SMSs or USSD application that is going to make sure that everyone is going to get information. They're, going, they're hoping, they're coming up with AI-driven uh, algorithms that are going to match a student with the right question. They're coming up with, you find a lot of people who know there's a problem in the space, and they're coming up with very interesting ideas. But the problem is that some of these problems are inherent from a curriculum that has to be solved from the public sector. Like some of these things, the private sector cannot scale as much. And so when, whenever I'm thinking about the private, whatever, uh, most of the problems are a lot of startups solve in this part of the continent are things that should be solved by the government, right? And most of these companies are underfunded. So you find companies that are not scaling extremely fast because one, they're either doing something that the government should be doing anyway, but they're not doing, so they have to be innovative and it's hard to sell products that, you know, it's it's a very interesting price point. Uh, you know, you have to cut a lot of, you're not making any pr- profits until, because you're selling something that a government should be actually subsidizing on. And I, I think that's the biggest challenge in the space is that you have to be creative on how you price your points, you price your products, you have to be creative on how you add, you partner with these schools that might not be very progressive. You have to be very, you have to be very innovative in how you even sell these products, knowing that a huge market of the people who will be receiving these goods do not have smartphones, right? I think there's problems upon problems, especially in the education space where going back to the, you know, even some people don't even have school access to schools yet. Like it's, we just have so many problems <laughs> and most of these companies cannot solve for them because they don't have enough funds. If you look at rounds of funding that gets in this continent are equivalent to the rounds of funding people get in idea stage in Silicon Valley. Someone gets $1 million for an idea, right? To think through an idea, right? Here, someone gets a million dollars when they're three years in the market. Mm-hmm. So that tells you so much about exactly, exactly like most of these companies cannot scale 
as much as they should because technically there's no money backing them up because it's a very risky market according to investors this market um again it's a very complicated market that needs you to invest in a very different way than you invest in silicon valley but my argument is some of these things that most of these people are solving should be solved by the government and or very invested by people who really do care about this in a very local way so someone who actually has gone through the Kenyan system and understands how the Kenyan education system is just bad and is willing to invest a lot of money in a company that they believe will actually change and scale it. So I, I do believe that um, some of these things are a combination of so many different problems in this space and they can't just be solved one way, but it's more like, how can the government be involved in this? How can we ensure that we have the right partnership with the private sector? How can we speak to how can you speak to unions that exist? I think it's an entire, and that's why a lot of people instead say, keep on saying that in, a, in the continent, you don't need to build empires, you need to build ecosystems. Because empires will fall when you don't have an entire ecosystem that is built to, like an example is e-commerce. You need to have a trust-based economy for e-commerce to work. So you have to create an economy that is based on trust. So you cannot just come up with an entire amazing idea of like, e-commerce and people cannot yet trust payment online, right? It's like, how then can you ensure that you're localizing pro solutions that actually are building an ecosystem that can be able to then navigate and have the startup that is brilliant have a scalable effect? And so that I, I do think it's it's a huge problem that will not take one year to solve. It will take several years and decades. You're changing an entire culture. Another thing, uh, when you mentioned the fourth industrial revolution and about AI automation and autonomy, so I was at least I was listening to a talk a while back, and I think it was I don't know, it was Jack Ma or someone say that the one thing when it comes to AI and us humans, we'll never be able to have the capacity to compete with them, especially when it comes to technical aspects. So now, when you tie this to education, is it counterintuitive to a, to a certain extent to Let's say develop skills that are only that are only technical based among uh, the young population as they grow up. So how how would you, Mama? What are your opinions when it comes to providing the the, the, the necessary skills? <laughs> Sorry to be a bit off. <laughs> when it comes to providing the necessary skills that will make these people relevant in the future, considering that they will not really have the capacity to compete with. Uh, an AI system or something of that sort, yeah. So how, what should the education system really be geared towards? Even if you provide a technical base, should it involve, you mentioned something considering uh, critical thinking is something that people are really looking for in the market. Yeah, so how will you enforce that and nurture that? So someone actually asked a question about, is education even relevant anymore? Mm -hmm. Like, should we even go to school? Yeah. And someone else was asking, I think after this uh, information from Google that they're, they're taking anyone with a post high school diploma, they're willing to hire them. So as you can see, like even the way work is going, it's changing, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, yes, AI will be there. There will be also other need for jobs that will be done by humans, I do think, in the next 100, 200 years. Maybe, maybe so one of the jobs that I always joke that will never be taken by robots, so who knows, like hair salons. I don't know whether women can sit down and just have a robot go through their hair. I don't know, maybe that, that's another, another interesting robot that's out there. But I do think that the way the African continent is, is and in terms of like people pushing for a united continent, right, united economies. And I think that's, that, that's the beginning of, I think from my perspective, it's, it's then having con conversations between all these different 54 countries of 
what then should we be specializing on? Mm-hmm. Like if we're going to be having an integrated economy, yeah. right? And we're going to have an AI or the future of jobs is going to be very different. I think one of the things that I always think it's important to do is that right now Rwanda is doing cybersecurity. I think another country should pick up on something else that it should focus on and being amazing, bring it. It doesn't have to be everyone is learning this, right? And right from there, you're going to create an economy that is very self-sustainable. Because I do think the problem in the continent right now, we're not self-sustainable in a way that it always baffles me that Ghana produces and Ivory Coast and a combined other West African countries contribute 98% of cocoa and yet export 1% of chocolate. And we consume a lot of like chocolate that is not even manufactured in the continent. I mean, that's an entire play of like regional economies and policies and all different things. But I think it's time for us to work as a unit in terms of like what can we ensure that we are creating technologies that we'll be consuming ourselves. Because one of the conversations that's going around right now is that data is very driven to one particular gender and race right now because um, one of the conversations that was going around was that even uh, safety belts are not, the data is very male driven, right? It's like the data around safety belts, the data around the size of a brick, is a brick that only a man can hold. That's why women are not in construction center. It's an entire conversation on data that we have right now. It's like predominantly in one, it's way to one side. And that's why AIs, for example, when they start learning, they'll be learning only the data that is inherently in the system, right? So then how can we ensure that we have data, again, going to localizing things? How can we ensure that we have products that are based in the continent? How can we ensure that we have data that is very integral to the continent or this part of the world in such a way that once we start producing products, when we start producing services, it's very consumable by our population. That's how you're able to create globally competitive companies because you're using your own data to come up with a very data-driven decision making. Mm -hmm. Even that as a basic before even going to AI, right? It's like how then can we start mining our own data for our own specific users and having very a very united front in terms of like creating self-sustainable products in the continent in a way that you're able to ensure that everyone has like a competitive advantage in the skill set. So it's not, it's not, mo- it's curriculums in, 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 in not just in Kenyan curriculum per se, but like we need to go back to the day when everyone could go to Makerere University and then go to, I don't know, some other university in Ghana when, you know, when we had those dopers president back in the day. So I think it's, it's time to just start um, uh, picking on a comparative advantage, whatever that looks like, and just investing in that so that we have a continent that is creating products that are consumed by its own economies. And if you look at China, for example, China has equivalent to everything. They, for Google, they have their own product. For Amazon, they have their own product. For Twitter, they have their own product. For everything, they have their own product, right? And the reason why that is interesting is because they have data for their own economy, and they're also planning on expanding those companies and going outside their own cu- countries. And that's why that's why China is becoming globally competitive. How can we then create globally competitive c- companies that are also producing for the masses? So that's why, that's why our education system has to be integrally focused on creating things that are African-centric or, you know, history. Mm-hmm. We don't even read history in high school, like very deep history about the Benin Empire. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's the small things about awakening and making sure that everyone is, like it's more like um, just making sure that everyone knows their history, everyone have a better sense of like their identity and awareness. awareness and just making sure that they, because their curriculum again is a reflection of the culture you're building in the society. Then what exactly do you want your African person to be like? What do you want your Kenyan person to be like? 
Do you want them to be Afrocentric? Then your curriculum should be very focused on that. You should be reading more Goge with Yongos, right? Do you want your society to be very religious? Then you should have that in your curriculum. Do you want your country to be very this kind of culture? So it's it's figuring out what the African culture is and then focusing on like curriculum so it can build that because we're going to have a united front. So that is my argument on the same. And again, okay, this is a bit of a tangent. You mentioned something about um, most of the startups in Africa, in Kenya, actually in Kenya, are solving challenges that the government should actually be solving. So in terms of a viable public-private partnership, so actually how do you, in your opinion, how would be the best way to go, to go about this? And then you mentioned something about uh, subsidies. So is that a viable option where the government could subsidize uh, these companies? In their in their endeavors, maybe aid them in with its logistics or some other way. Yeah. Actually, in Ghana, I don't know whether this is actually factually true, but I saw a tweet. You know, nowadays you quote tweets because this is the society we become. But like, there's a tweet uh, someone posted and said that in Ghana, the government actually provides subsidies mm-hmm. for startups. Hmm for them to, like, especially tax. Mm-hmm. They are given tax holidays, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And if you think about taxing startups, mm-hmm. it's very tricky because most of these companies are pre-revenue, mm, yeah, right? Yeah. And if you tax them and they have to pay taxes, I was, I was speaking to a friend in, in Rwanda who was telling me that they had to pay a tax that is incorporated to a corporate tax, which is like over 30%, right? It's like, how are they surviving? Mm-hmm. They are, their survival is literally dependent on how much money they are left after the tax, mm-hmm. right? So you find that they are not able to even even skill think about the you know think about bringing in new talent or hiring new talent because they're worried about different things so i do think in terms of support from the government i think it's about time that the government recognizes that these particular startups are not leaving anytime soon and they're solving things that they actually should be solving so they're actually very important in this economy and then thinking through how they can be able to like create incentives for them Right? Whether I know Microsoft sometimes offers incentive where it gives you like Azure, do you call it Azure? Azure. 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 Or like I know like companies, some companies give MailChimp for like a year. Like, you know, like how then can the government start thinking of incentivizing startups? Is it offering tax holidays, as I said? Is it offering partnerships or um, tenders? Like, how exactly does that framework look like? It depends on like a government and what it's willing to provide. And given that most of them, the government are very concerned about youth and employment, I think they should really take into consideration that most of these startups are actually being sold by young people who are really ex- ex- excited about solving problems and they should, and it's offering them spaces or data or, you know, like I think they have too much to offer mm-hmm. and I don't think it's it's absurd if that's something that they can offer because I know Chinese government actually offers free spaces mm. so that you have like a high hub where people can just come in with free internet. Right? Imagine how many, uh, an example that we can use, Huduma, Huduma Center. Yeah. Huduma Center is across the, uh, across country, the country yeah. in every single county. Imagine if they had space where just entrepreneurs could just come in and work f- with free Wi-Fi mm. and food mm. and so for county level problems. That is a high hub or a hub inside a county and it's literally just running. But again, there's a lot of like complication when you think about government and any incentive that the government has. But I do think it's it's possible for government to really do focus on startups and offer incentives in whatever form that is for them to help them solve for problems that the citizen are going through. Interesting. So as we wind up, last uh, parting shots. Mm. 
Sure. Um, we, as I've as I mentioned before, we are always trying to to grow our pipeline. So if you are interested in getting in contact with us, you can go to our website, which is www.afrijob.org. And then you can also email us anytime our contact information is there. But you can also just go info at afrojob.org, Trey at afrojob.org, or Harriet at afrojob.org. And uh, we try and get back to people as, as soon as possible. Um, and we're always open to talking with, with people who are interested in working with us. I think the time is now, right? Africa, they call it the last frontier when it comes to a lot of innovation. And if you're out there and you're thinking of how to be part of this ecosystem, again, you can always reach out to us, the same, same information as well as the website. So if you're really out there and a professional who is thinking of taking a sabbatical leave or you're this person who's just thinking of taking time off and just, you know, rethinking your career path or like you want to create impact in the system yeah just reach out to us we'll work with you and see how how best you can fit in this ecosystem because that's our job to match you with the right partner or match you with the right person to help you grow your skills to ensure that your skills are used in the right um the right platform so reach out to us and we'll be excited to work with you i think it's it's time to build globally competitive companies and we are ready to work with everyone in this space to do that Thank you. Thank you. Much. Thank you, Trey. Thank you, Harriet. It is an amazing talk. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And uh, see you next week. Bye. Bye, uh, bye guys.